0: Please pray with me. Father, the devil will do all he can to make the cross boring to us. He'll tell us it's just tradition. He'll tell us it's too academic. He'll tell us we should assume that we know it, so no need to study it further. He'll make us think that the cross is the door in which you enter into a kingdom, to your kingdom but make us forget that it's also the soil in which we grow in it. It's not Christianity 101. It's the very thing that's going to keep us going and praise and worship you with joy and awe throughout our lives. Help us, Father, today ponder upon it more and retune our loves and our hearts as we do so back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I've honestly lost count of how many times people have tried to convince me that Christianity is basically the same as any other religion. That basically, like all other religions, we all have these sets of moral laws and principles we're supposed to live by. And we also have these religious rituals that we should participate in. So that in the end, what Christianity tells us, like... Most other religions, like if we do certain things and believe in the certain things, in the end, this all-good, this all-powerful God is going to give us some kind of blessing and honor, either in this life or the next. Therefore, like everyone else, what we're basically trying to do is do our religious stuff as much as possible, which means at the very least make it the church on special days like Christmas or today. And the rest of the time, we're like everyone else, just trying to be decent people while not sinning or messing up too badly. So while on the surface there might be similarities, I would argue that this is a gross oversimplification of what Christianity really teaches. Because what we're celebrating today should actually remind us of why Christianity is not just a religion of rules and ritualism. For today, we're remembering something very unique about the Christian God. That the God we worship is a God who dies for us. So our sermon today will be talking about what kind of difference this reality should make in our lives. We'll be looking at a passage from the Gospel of Mark where Jesus gives us one of His most important teachings about the meaning of His death to his disciples, as he was on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. We'll be studying an interesting conversation between James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which Jesus uses as an opportunity to teach all of his disciples about what it truly means to follow him. And from this teaching, I want to point out three things that we must be prepared to commit to do when we're following a Lord who would lay down his life. Okay. Are three points. Being a disciple of a Lord who lays down his life means we must one, count the cost of being a disciple, two, be content with our, the portion our Lord gives us, and three, we must embrace the upside down ethic of God's kingdom. Count the cost, be content. Embrace the upside-down ethic right so let's turn our Bibles to mark chapter 10 verse 35 to 45 and allow the words of the Lord instruct us on this blessed day this is the Word of God and James and John the sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him teacher we want you to do whatever we ask of you and he said to them uh, what do you want me to do for you and they said to him grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in glory and jesus said to them you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that i drink or be baptized with the baptism with which i am baptized and they said to him we are able and jesus said to them the cup that i drink you will drink and the baptism with which i am baptized you will be baptized but to sit at my right hand, or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, "You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them, but it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many thus says the Lord I encourage you to keep your Bibles open because I'll be referring to it quite closely And may the Holy Spirit give us ears to hear to understand this teaching and soften our hearts so that we can truly live by it. Okay, so point one, being a disciple of a Lord who lays down his life means we must count the cost of being like our Lord. So we saw in our text, That James and John, who along with Peter, we just talked about, were considered to be the closest disciples of Christ, right? They were the first ones to be called. They were with Jesus the longest. And so they had an audacious request for Jesus in verse 35. They were basically like, Jesus, if uh, if we ask you something, would you do it? Like, you'll do it, right? They thought that their history with Jesus gave them this relational capital with Jesus to ask for a blank check as if their loyalty to Jesus entitled them to some special favors from Him. And if we've been following the Gospel of Mark, this request should immediately strike us as seriously irreverent and self-centered. First of all, it's really quite arrogant in my opinion that they would be uh, presuming that they would be in a position to tell Jesus what to do. But more importantly, if we read immediately before our text, what did Jesus just tell them? He just told them that he was going to be suffering, he was going to be humiliated, and ultimately, he was going to be killed. But James and John, they weren't worried about that, right? All that mattered to them, was that while they were honoring Jesus, they would be honored too. They knew that people respected Jesus, they knew Jesus was capable of doing miracles, they saw him heal tons of people, even raise a guy from the dead, so they knew. He was legit, and he was capable of doing what they ask. In fact, it seemed like they knew exactly who Jesus is. Right? The Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament, God's chosen king would defeat all the enemies of his people and reign in glory over all nations, right? They knew he was going to be in glory. So, they genuinely believed. And in fact, if you read Matthew 19, Jesus did promise that when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, that the disciples too will sit on thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. So he promised there will be thrones. And this wasn't a request that came out of nowhere. And perhaps charitably, you can say that this came out of genuine faith in Jesus and trust in his promises. The problem is, friends, they were not satisfied with the reward and honor that Jesus already had promised them. They wanted more. In verse 37, it shows that they wanted to be the ones who were right by His side as He reigns, where they thought the highest position of honor and power would be. So you know what this shows? That while these brothers did have faith in Christ, while they did honor Christ, they did not honor Him simply because He was worthy of honor. No, they were honoring Christ so that they themselves would be honored. You see, they didn't see the fact that Jesus is going to reign as the righteous ruler of all creation as itself the highest good. They were using him as a means to get what they wanted. And brothers and sisters, this is an insidious tendency of the sinful human heart. Whereby, perhaps unknowingly, even our devotion to God, our worship, and our discipleship have actually become masks. our own self interest and while like James and John there might be genuine faith there we might be so immersed in self absorption to the point that we have lost sight of the actual reason why Jesus being Lord is good news and we'll soon learn about why it is good news but for now let's meditate on the fact that this text is warning us that we find ourselves feeling prideful about our religious devotion, if there is any self-righteousness in us that is leading us to believe that we're entitled to blessings from God because of our good works, if we search our hearts and find that we actually seek the gifts instead of a relationship with the giver, these are signs, friends, that we're becoming like James and John, losing track of what it means to really be disciples of Christ. And this is a dangerous error. Because as with James and John, this error can lead us to such selective hearing towards the teachings of Christ such that we only care about what benefits we get from Jesus while taking for granted, failing to appreciate what Jesus had to go through in order that we may be blessed by Him at all. Because this is exactly what Jesus began to remind the brothers in verse 38. With such a classic Jesus move, he turned the brothers' request on them to rebuke them with grace. Basically, Jesus answered them, so, okay, you want to share in the honor that I get? Do you think you can go through what I'm about to go through to get it? In verse 38, Jesus talks about the cup that he's about to drink and the baptism that he was going to go through. These are images that are used Throughout the Bible, and we can spend a lot of time exploring both of these. But suffice to say that the cup that Jesus is referring to is the cup of God's wrath, the cup of staggering that's talked about in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the cup of judgment that he was about to pour out on the nations for their sin and disobedience. And this baptism of Christ is this parallel image, talking about that Jesus is about to be completely immersed in the waters of God's judgment. That though he was innocent, Jesus was about to take this judgment upon himself for us by being baptized in God's wrath and cut off from the land of the living. You see, like James and John, we have no idea what Jesus went through for us so that we can have honor from God at all. We can only imagine it. What he did that made him worthy of the honor we give him today. But just like them... We are so quick to cash in on the benefits of God's kingdom while being so slow to hear the costs of actually participating in it. Because although whatever uh, suffering and sacrifices we made uh, has not earned us God's favor and has not redeemed anyone as Jesus did, the repercussions, the consequences of following Christ will mean that we will also suffer like he did. Following Jesus will cost us something, be it rejection from your family and friends, missing out on the worldly pleasures the world so freely indulges in, or straight up persecution. Whatever it is, following Christ has never promised to be easy, never promised to be smooth sailing. That's why Jesus repeatedly told his disciples to count the cost, to pick up the cross, to count all else lost, Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. As Paul says. So are we prepared for this, friends? Have we truly counted the cost? Because following Jesus might require us to let go of things that we thought we could have never lived without. Without any assurances that we'll get anything in return besides Christ himself. Just point two. Being a disciple of the Lord who lays down his life means you must be content with the portion our Lord gives us. So notice verse 39. After Jesus spells out to James and John what the true cost of being a disciple is, of being on his side when he's in glory, James and John nonchalantly answers, Yeah, we're able. Now, if we assume that they understood what it means that They might likewise suffer and die like Jesus. We might commend their faith. But I doubt this was the case. Because Jesus himself, as he was about to drink the cup he was talking about in the garden of Gethsemane, was filled with so immense anguish. The agony that Jesus was about to go through was so terrifying. Such that the gospel of Luke tells us that his sweat turned into blood. And when Jesus was actually captured before he was crucified, the disciples weren't there, like, no, take us too. They panicked. They scattered. They bailed, going back to the lives that they had before Jesus called them. So I don't think their apparent solidarity with Christ here actually shows their faith. Rather, it shows that they've actually have yet to understand the true nature of being a disciple of Christ. You see, James and John, like so many of us, are still under the impression that our relationship with God is transactional. Like most of our human relationships. right? Like we think how it works is, okay, I'll do stuff for God because God is going to do stuff for me in return. So if Jesus is going to be king of the world and being on his team means that I'm going to be hooked up to, well sign me up. I'll do anything. You know, it's like that game we play as kids. What will you do for a billion dollars? And then we try to come up with the most outlandish answer. Because it would be almost anything. So what would you do if you could be the king of the world with Jesus? If you believe that's going to happen, the answer is probably going to be pretty much anything. However, if we genuinely believe, that what we do and what we give, what we give up, entitles us to what Christ is offering, we will ultimately be disappointed. Because this simply isn't how it works. And Jesus' answer to James and John's casual willingness to suffer with him in verse 39 to 40 shows us why not. First, he prophetically affirms in verse 39, actually, you will drink the cup. That I'm drinking and be baptized with my baptism. Jesus plainly tells them that they're going to suffer too for his sake. It's not going to be redemptive as Jesus' suffering was. Nonetheless, Jesus confirms that suffering is indeed part of the deal when being his disciples. And this was particularly true of James and John, right? We just studied in the book of Acts how James was the first of the apostles to give up his life for the sake of the gospel. While John actually survived the longest amongst the disciples and died a natural death. Which only means he endured the suffering and persecution the early Christians went through for longer. So who got the better deal? I don't know. You tell me. So Jesus knew that James and John will indeed suffer too. But he still does not guarantee them that they will get what they want. Instead in verse 40... Jesus totally bursts their bubble and tells them that the honored position on his left and on his right in his glory is not his to give. Now, this is not Jesus admitting that he doesn't have enough authority. But as many commentators have observed, this is actually foreshadowing. Because the Bible is clear that the moment Jesus is exalted to his glorious throne was actually when he was nailed on the cross. The cross was his throne. There were actually two guys who signed up for the spot on his right and on his left when this happened. If you know the story, these were the thieves who were crucified with him there too. Explicitly, the gospel says, on his left and one on his right. The two people that had no prior relationship, no prior history with Jesus, were the ones who got to sit in where James and John thought the honored position will be. So here's what Jesus' point seems to be. It does not matter who gets to sit where when Jesus is in glory. Because the disciples were never supposed to follow Him because they knew in advance what was going to happen. Or because whatever it is, they hope to get from Him. No. We are solely supposed to go where Jesus tells us only because He is leading us there. And because where he is leading us, there will he be together with us. By his Holy Spirit comforting and strengthening us while on earth and ultimately face to face when we see him in glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the only assurance that we have as we live being disciples of Christ that he will be with us whatever the circumstance. And this, friends, is a blessed assurance. And I know the uncertainty that this entails can cause a lot of anxiety, right? It's really scary not being able to control the kind of life God calls us to. It's really hard to come to terms with the fact that we might not have as much wealth and comfort as perhaps we've always wanted, or not being married as soon as we like, or even at all. Or not being able to achieve as much as we like. Or be liked by people for as much as we've hoped for. Because Jesus never promised us any of these things. But He has promised us Himself for free. We get to have this blessed relationship with Him. With the Lord of all creation. Not because of what we can do or give for Him. But purely out of His great love and mercy for us. That he pours out freely. So he is our portion and the one through whom all of God's blessings flow. We cannot be certain of what kind of blessings we get and when, but we do have the fount of every blessing. Therefore, every one of us who are hoping for any kind of benefits of Christianity must ask ourselves first is Jesus enough? Can we really be content? Only with Him as our assurance. It's a tough question, isn't it? And it gets even tougher when we give a positive answer to this question. Because I'm guessing most of us here have set up our lives in such a way that we hopefully can get to live the way that we want. Such that we can be spared of all the burdens and problems and anxieties that we hate and ultimately be in a position to reach the ambitions that we've set for ourselves. I think, or at least I hope, none of us here want to just be aimlessly floating through lives, right? We have goals in our lives, and most of us have been working very hard to achieve them. So if we're willing to be disciples of Christ, willing to be called in such a way that we're willing to lose everything we've worked so hard for, for the sake of Christ, and are to be content with whatever situation the Lord gives us, Like, how we live our lives, right? I mean, mean, we're supposed to still plan what we're going to do. We still need to aim and work for something. What can we aim for when we're supposed to be willing to sacrifice everything while expecting nothing in return but the grace that our Lord freely gives anyway? This is exactly what Jesus teaches us in the remainder of our passage. Point three. Being a disciple of a Lord who lays down his life means that we must embrace the upside-down ethic of the kingdom of God. So we see in verse 41, after hearing about James and John's request, the other disciples became indignant, right? They were mad at them. They were, what? You ask for the power seats? But it's likely it's not because they thought James and John were doing anything wrong, It's because the disciples wanted the same thing too, right? It's not the only time in the Gospels we find the disciples bickering amongst themselves about who was the greatest amongst them. And this showed Jesus that his disciples didn't quite actually get it yet. They still got it twisted and they needed to completely change how they thought about what it means to be great. So in verse 42 to 45, we see that Jesus used the disciples' pettiness as an opportunity to teach them a very important lesson. We're going to break it down. Okay, so first, verse 41. Jesus lays out to His disciples the paradigm of the world they were still using. He says, you know, that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and they're great ones. Exercise authority over them. Jesus' point here is that amongst the Gentiles, amongst the people who do not know God, the godless, the ones who rule, the ones who have power, use it to elevate themselves about others. That the world teaches us to measure our success based on our our ability to be the ones giving orders instead of the ones taking them. That the way of the world, is that power gives us the right to feel like we're better than other people and influence their actions for our own self-interest. And if we're honest, friends, we all want this right. The feeling like we're below anybody or that we're a failure or we're lagging behind or something is awful. It can be crushing. And I don't know about you, but I personally hate it when I have no choice or when people tell me what to do. So we spend so much time educating ourselves, accumulating assets, working so hard in our careers, all so that we can avoid feeling this powerlessness. But in verse 43 to 44, Jesus outright rejects this model and gives them what is the true principle of greatness. He says, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you may be slave of must be slave of all. Notice the progression here. If you want to be great, you must be willing to humble yourselves and serve one another. But if you want to go even greater, if you want to top that, if you want to be first, you need to go even lower and not just become a servant, but a slave to all. You see, Jesus is teaching us here that there is a fundamental disagreement between the values of the world and the ethics of the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, the posture of greatness is the posture of a servant. Such that the ones who are worthy of honor are the ones who can, not the ones who can have or take the most, but actually the ones who are most willing to serve and to give the most. And not to do so transactionally, because we expect anything in return, But to serve like our Lord, simply for the sake of love. For what else, friends, is service, but love that is made tangible. And love is by nature others focused. Therefore, the self-interested, self-serving motives that disciples showed, and we also can often find in ourselves, actually kills love. And it's completely foreign to the kingdom of God. And this has radical implications for our lives, doesn't it? It turns a lot of what we're trying to do with our lives upside down. Because this means as disciples of Christ, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we should be governed by this law of self-sacrificial love. So that what we're meant to do, what our ambition should be, is to be able to serve others as much as possible that any honor, blessing, and wealth God happens to give us is not for us to hoard or protect, but for us to generously give and to show love with. And I know, friends, this sounds unrealistically hard, but it is possible because Jesus showed us it's possible because the reason why service is the true paradigm of greatness it's because the greatest one, the one who is worthy of most honor, did not even spare his own life in order to serve us. Listen to this. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is such an important teaching of Jesus because it summarizes for us what the life of his Christ has taught us. That at the essence... Of the character of God is giving Jesus Christ was the all-powerful all-knowing creator of heaven and earth who came to earth in order to rule over his creation but how does he rule not like any of the rulers of the earth do right through might and dominance but through service and suffering the one who was anointed to rule over all who has all power used his power to humble himself and suffer all the consequences of our sin on our behalf, to redeem his people who are hopelessly enslaved by sin and death. So, though each one of us owe obedience to God, we all have rebelled against God so that we can rule ourselves. Therefore, far from being entitled to any blessing or honor from God, what our works deserve is to be cut off from the God of life and be banished from his kingdom forever but because Jesus has died for us and because the debt of sin have been paid off for us we can now participate in this new creation where Jesus is king and sacrificial life is the law And friends this is the most liberating system right We're free now because we don't have to compare ourselves with others. We don't have to anxiously try to work so hard, feeling that what we do might not be enough to make us happy. But we can completely rest in the fact that the one taking care of us, the one who is giving us every blessing is our Heavenly Father, who is working behind all things for our good. And that He has the best for us. So brothers and sisters, as we proclaim the Lord's death death today, let us not only thank Him for what His death has done for us, but also meditate deeply on what His death has taught us to do. Right after this, we'll have communion. And for those of us who've been baptized and have already committed to be disciples of Christ, when we take this cup, Right? Remember that not only did Jesus drink the cut of God's wrath on our behalf by having his body broken, but also that we have committed to drink the cup that he has drank. Meaning that we have also died to the sinful order of this world, died to the self-interested way of sin, and have been born again to be great by living out the self-sacrificial way of love our Lord taught us. But if you've yet to follow Jesus and are not yet ready to drink this cup, I tell you now that Jesus has taken the cup of God's wrath for you too. If you're willing to be done with the way of this world and to commit to trust Him and follow Him wherever He takes you. Because wherever He takes us, He will be also. Will you go with Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the king of the universe. Blessed is your name. Father, who are we that you would humble yourself to such an extent that you would endure such suffering for us? We do not deserve it, Lord, and we admit that only in you we have any share in the blessings you have. Father, remind us of this fact, make us be thankful of this fact, but also you engrave this fact in our hearts such that it becomes the paradigm under which we live, that we may be the ones who share your self-sacrificial love to others, that we may witness to who you are and the kind of God who has died for us. Bless us this day, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.